Let's turn our Bibles together to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. While you're looking that up, uh, last week in your order of service, I hope you found this before you canned it in the trash and the recycling. I hope you put it in the recycling, actually. Uh, but this is, a, this is an announcement of the spring conference, 10th spring conference, which is featuring this year Amy Bird. Well, actually, this is the first one we've had, so it's the first time we're featuring anybody. But this year, we're featuring Amy Bird as the main speaker. It started life as a women's conference. Then the women who were organizing it thought they'd be lonely without some men there, so they wondered whether we might invite men to it. And uh, that's what we've done, because the topics that Amy is dealing with are topics that apply to both men and women, and which the New Testament, I think, uh, in my opinion, foresees that we are meant to talk about with one another in the context of the church. There are things that we're meant to exhort one another about and rebuke one another about and encourage one another with from the Scriptures, and we're to do that as the body of Christ. And so she's going to be talking about ways in which we can do that as the body of Christ. And so it's open. Ladies, you can bring a man with you, apparently, is really all, all it's saying. And uh, and apparently that spices things up. Well, there, there you go. It's, uh, I'm just passing the information along. Okay, we're going to read from Hebrews uh, 11. We've moved to this great new section of Scripture, or we are moving today to it. And I want to read from verse 39 of chapter 10. Uh, remember, the chapter divisions are arbitrary, and in this case, particularly arbitrary. The, the writer says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's one way of putting it. The word in the original is substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The conviction or evidence of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we're moving then to this great chapter. If you've read it, you'll know that this chapter is full of the statement, by faith, and it arranges a whole series of names of people who lived before Christ came and who all lived and died in faith. It was the humanist Erasmus that called this chapter the Fidei Laudata, Laudata. and I think that's uh, a good way of describing it. It, it is a pr in praise of faith. It is a celebration of faith. It is holding up faith, as it were, publicly and showing it off in order that we might acknowledge it and recognize it and see it in action. At the end of chapter 10, the author has urged his readers, including us, to press on in faith, to keep going in the Christian life. The argument is that it's one thing to trust in Jesus for salvation. 
which involves faith. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life is the kind of quintessence of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But if the Christian life begins there, the Christian life is intended to go on being a life of faith. It is another thing to live life as a believer. And here in chapter 11, the author is setting about the task of teaching us the holy art of exercising faith and living by faith throughout this, our earthly life and pilgrimage. And throughout the rest of the chapter, what we'll find is that he describes the effects of faith. But here at the beginning, he describes in this first verse the formal acts of faith. The formal acts of faith are these. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So let's extract those two descriptions. Faith is the substance of things not seen. We understand faith uh, in the sense of a confident expectation, a firm belief that gives our hope, the things on which we put our hope in the future, a present and firm existence in our minds and in our hearts at this moment. If you think about this for a moment, the things that we hope for are presently absent to us. They're yet to come. They're in the future. But to the believer, the author is saying, these things come into the present in the mind of the believer, and they take on a real substantial form in the mind of the believer that governs the way the believer thinks and the way the believer lives from day to day. As if the believer knew themselves to be in present possession of them and enjoyment of them. The things that we hope for, we already know about, and they are already impacting the way we live our lives. That's the implication of what he's saying. And we have an example of this from the Old Testament. That's what the author is going to expound in the verses that follow. If you think about this, these Old Testament believers, up until Malachi's time, right up until the time of John the Baptist, in fact, to them the things of the Messiah, the, the promise of the Messiah, was all in the future. It was all something they hoped for. They were looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah. In the case of Abraham, one of the people in this chapter, Abraham, he lived 2,000 years before the Messiah came. 2,000 years before. And he believed in the coming of the Christ. And yet, what were matters of hope for Abraham are not matters of hope for us. They're matters of history to us. What has happened in the life and death and resurrection and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ is behind us now. It's, it's in the past. To Abraham, this was in the future. This was his future hope. 
And yet Jesus said about Abraham that his future hope had a present existence in his mind. It was a present substantial existence. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He had by faith, as it were, a direct view of that day. That day that was to come was to Abraham present. It was as if the Holy Spirit presented it before his eyes and his imagination so that Jesus can say of Abraham, he saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. In fact, at the very end of this chapter, we'll read these words. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar. Faith is the substance. It is the substantial grasp of a reality which is in the future, but in the mind of faith, before the eyes of faith. It is a present substance. It is a reality right before their eyes. And without, without faith, we cannot see these things that are a distance from us. Now, of course, the author is not giving us here a definition of faith in the strict sense. We use the word faith in a variety of ways. Take the affirmation, we believe. When we say the creed, we normally begin with those words, we believe or I believe. And when we say that, we're thinking not so much of my action of believing, we're thinking of what it is we hold in common. What is this faith once delivered to the saints? the things that are most surely believed among us. We affirm them. We confess them. It's very possible for us to get to the end of our lives, to be able to look back over our lives and to be able to say, as the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, I have kept the faith. It's also possible to make shipwreck of your faith by abandoning those truths that we hold in common. So when we say we believe, we're thinking of the faith in the sense of that body of truth revealed in Scripture, articulated and confessed by the church that has to be taught and believed by God's people. Or take the exhortation, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There we're thinking of faith as something in the nature of trusting not only understanding something, but leaning on something, receiving the salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ. Faith is the alone instrument of our salvation in that we take it by faith. We receive it by faith. We rest on it by faith. We put all of our weight on Christ. I'm not going to climb on it. It's okay. Not today. Phil Rikens here, and he would never let me live it down. We rest all of our weight on Christ, and thereby we are justified. We're put right with God by faith. So there's an affirmation and an exhortation, but take the description. The Christian is called a believer. It can be said of our Christian lives that we are 
Throughout our Christian lives, from the moment we trust in Christ to the end, we are believing people. This is the objective, lifelong state of what it means to be a Christian. This is what the life of a Christian looks like before they go home to glory, before they're with Christ, which is by far the best. And that's what's in view in this chapter. It is that lifelong believing, believing God as the very foundation and substance and reality of the life of the Christian. In fact, what we have here is an explanation of what is described at the end of chapter 10 in that last verse. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, or those who believe and are saved. The author is commending the grace of faith and the life of faith. He's saying that the grace gift of God of faith in the life of a believer and the life of faith is a preservative against stepping out of the covenant community, stepping away from the faith of Christ. That's what the now means in chapter 11, verse 1. Faith delivers this preservation mentioned at the end of chapter 10. This faith delivers the final salvation promised to the child of God. Now, faith, this faith, does what it says on the, on the box. This faith effects what is said of it. It will preserve your soul. It will bring you to final salvation. And faith gives real subsistence. That is, it causes something substantial to be established in the mind of the believer concerning the things hoped for. Now, what are these things hoped for? The Bible talks about many great and precious promises that God has given to His people. Throughout Hebrews, we're told to keep hold of the boldness and boast of that which is your hope, chapter 3. We're told to demonstrate the same enthusiasm all the way to the end for the completion of your hope. That's chapter 6. We're told again at the end of chapter 6, having having fled where you are in order to lay hold of the hope that lies ahead. That's the movement of the Christian life. You flee in order to journey towards the hope. Or chapter 7, a better hope through which we are approaching God. Or chapter 10, hold on to the secure confession of your hope. Hope is high on the agenda of what it means to be a Christian. And hope has to do with the future. We are future-orientated people. This is countercultural. This is counterintuitive. Faith looks to things that haven't happened yet and causes there to be a, a real subsistence in the minds and soul of the believers so that 
Faith causes those future things to be, that is to exist, and to be present in the mind and in the heart of the believer. Now, this is, this is a world away from wishful thinking. You notice from the press that there is a rollover lottery, and the lo- rollover lottery this, year, this week is going to be $180 million or something. Potentially, you could win it if you played the lottery. I made that figure up, by the way, but I saw that once, $180 million. I don't know what it is this week at all, just so as you know. Uh, <laughs> confession. Uh, but I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, you see that kind of thing, and I'm sure you know, maybe in a moment of weakness, a moment where you've got five minutes, you think, how would I spend that $180 million? Oh, I know what I would do here. And you think, well, I would give it to this charity and that charity. I would pay off tense debt, just in case you were looking for something to do with it. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and you come up with all kinds of ideas how you would spend that money. But you know, it's all fancy, don't you? You know it's all a fancy. It's all in your head. It's a million miles away from what the Holy Spirit does in the mind and heart of the believer when he establishes faith within us. Here is something that is built on the promises of God. Here is something that is substantial. Because the God who makes the promises is the God who promised Jesus to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus came. The God who makes the promises brought Jesus into the world, and Jesus did what Isaiah said he would do, what Jeremiah said he would do, what Malachi said he would do. And Jesus died and rose again. God raised him from the dead so that you know that those promises in your future were made by the God who kept his promises to those people in your past. Your faith is built on better promises. The promiser is reliable. He is trustworthy. He is unchangeable. He's unchangeable in his being, and he's unchangeable in his word. You can rely on his word. He is a faithful God. He keeps his word. In fact, this God, so says Thomas Manton, this God has a heart so big with love for his saints that he cannot wait until the accomplishment of his promises. He has to tell them before they happen. As it says in Isaiah 42, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isn't that a great thing? God's preparing all these things for our future in Christ, but he doesn't keep them until the end. He tells us about them now so that it stimulates our faith, encourages us in our Christian living, and gets us ready for that great day. That's our God. You know, in the book of Ruth, there's this lovely little picture. You you know the story. The heroine of the book is Ruth herself. And after losing her husband and after her mother-in-law, Naomi losing her sons, they go back to Bethlehem where Naomi came from. And Ruth is an outsider. She is a Moabitess. She comes back and she gets a little job uh, to, get, to earn some money working in the fields of this man called Boaz, a, a, a rich landowner in Bethlehem. And, uh, 
Every night she comes home and she tells her mother-in-law how she got on during the day, and the mother-in-law asks leading questions, as mother-in-laws do, and, uh, and she extracted from her that the boss, Boaz, was taking a lot of interest in her. Mother-in-law put two and two together, and she says to, Boaz, to, to Ruth these words, be still, my daughter. Calm down. Just take your time. Until you know how the matter will fall, for that man will not rest until he has finished the thing. Be still. That man will not rest until he has finished the thing. And what faith says to the believer is, my soul be still. There's a Scottish expression, dinna fash yourself. I bet you wish I hadn't told you that, because you're going to go home and wonder about it. But it means don't get all worked up. Don't be disturbed. Why they don't just say that, I have no idea. But they say, dinna fash yourself. Don't be disturbed. Be still. You won't know until you know how the matter will fall. For our God will not rest until He has accomplished His purpose for us. For the believer, then, we hold our inheritance that's coming in our hand already. Here we are on earth in the circumstances we find ourselves, but yet there's a sense in which we already have what's coming. What's the believer's true position? In that little phrase that the Apostle Paul uses over and over and over again, we are in Christ. Where is Christ? He is glorified. Glorified. So if we're in Christ, where are we? We're with Him in His glory in terms of our position, in terms of our relationship, in terms of our union with Christ, it is as if we were already glorified with Him, in Him. In fact, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. Not He will, He has. He has already delivered to the believer these things. We already live in some measure in the heavenly realms. We already belong there. We we, we have our life there. Our life is hid with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm. We find our identity from our connection to something that is yet to come for us but it's as if it is already here because the power of it already overshadows our lives. We already have eternal life. This is eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We have it already. Peter says, he has borne us again, uh, borne us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have these things now by way of promise. 
But in a sense, we have them now by way of possession. Why? We talk about that future as glory. Glory to come. But the Spirit of glory and of God already rests upon us. We call it eternal life. Yet the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you were given eternal life. We call it an inheritance. But we are already heirs and co-heirs of that inheritance. It's already ours. Already ours in Christ. Faith gives the impression the representation of the beauty and the glory of the things for which we're waiting and which we believe to the minds of a believer so that like Abraham who saw the day of Christ, we see by faith the day that is approaching. Beloved, we need to build our faith up with one another in this sense of encouraging one another to contemplate these eternal truths, the things that are hoped for, these things that are to come to bring present enjoyment to the believer right now in their Christian life. In fact, this enjoyment of future blessings is the greatest part of eternal life for the believer now. What in heaven is the eternal enjoyment of God in Christ is brought forward into the life of the believer. When we all get to heaven, what's, going to, what's it going to be like? It is going to be God, all in all, says Paul. Right now, however, it is Christ in me, the hope of glory, the hope of glory. Eternal life now is of the same substance as the eternal life to come, only different in degree. Once united to Christ, we can never be separated from Him. For John says, he that has the Son has life. And Manton says, you have the fairest part of eternal life already when you have Christ in you, Christ in you. In other words, to have faith for the believer, in the words of an old chorus, is to have heaven come down and glory fill your soul. When the apostle is talking about what it means to be justified by faith. What does he immediately go on to say? He goes on to say that we have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit now. When Peter is writing of the believer's earthly experience, and he says, you know, having not seen him, we love him. And though now we see him not, not we rejoice in him, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
In other words, there is joy in Jesus now to to be had. There's a sense of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit for the believer to enjoy this side of eternity as a taste, a foretaste of the glory that is waiting to be revealed in us. And right now what's happening is that we are being changed into his image from one degree of glory into another. Glory lies ahead of us. Grace is our experience here, but grace is the beginning of glory. Glory is grace perfected. The first degree of grace is glory begun. The final consummation of grace is glory perfected. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The word used here means proof, demonstration, or evidence. It can also mean conviction. But a conviction born out of the proof, the demonstration, or the evidence. Use of the law court, bringing evidence into the law court in order to bring and persuade the jury of a particular verdict. And faith is a grace of God that represents the things of truth with such clarity and authority to the believer that the believer is persuaded, convinced, and compelled by those truths. The Holy Spirit's responsible for that. He takes the Word of God, He mixes it up with faith, and He puts it into the heart, as it were, of the believer. The Holy Spirit gives us a satisfactory knowledge of the truths that He delivers to us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Because when faith comes to you, when when you believe, when you first believe, a light goes on. Light shines into your mind and your understanding. It's the light of God. The God who said, let there be light, says to you individually, let there be light. And and the darkness and the clouds and the obscurity begin, begin to disappear like fog, beginning to thin out as the sun begins to rise in the sky. Even when you become a Christian, perhaps initially, it's not all clear to you. There's still a fogginess, as it were, to your understanding. But, but as, you, as you go on in the Christian life and the sun rises higher in the sky, it disperses the fog of ignorance. It, it makes you to see more clearly the things of God. He puts His law into your mind, writes it on your heart. You were one time darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. The God of this age once blinded you, but now the light of the glory of God shines into your mind. You see the glory that there is in the Lord Jesus. That's why you worship Him. And so the first thing God does for a person is to give them a mind to know Him. As John puts it, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. Natural reason, common sense, they're great things. But once they're renewed by the Holy Spirit, they're greater things. They're servants of faith. And we can use them to contemplate 
the things of God, to converse about the things of God, and to be convinced about the things of God. The Holy Spirit then uses the Word of God to convince the believer of the realities that they have come to believe. And those things we have come to believe, he says, are those things that are not seen. You think about it for a moment. Some things are invisible by their nature. God is invisible. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are invisible because God is invisible. He's a spirit. God is a spirit. Angels, demons are invisible. The mysterious workings of providence are invisible to the eye of the believer. We can't see them. The ways in which the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to bring encouragement or strength to your heart and your mind in certain circumstances in your life, you can't really trace the way. The ways in which He answers prayer. The ways in which He organizes someone to come along and encourage you, and you, you can't see how that happened how all these coincidences all came together. These things are mysterious to us. They're invisible to us. These are unseen things. And behind them is the active, ever-active work of God who is everywhere at all times and always fully present, working for His people. In fact, John Owen puts it like this. It is of the nature of faith that it makes a life on things invisible. It makes a life on things invisible. Can you imagine? That's what you are as a believer. You live your whole life on invisible things, things unseen. My whole life has been built on things unseen. My my workaday life is based on things that are unseen. Everything I preach is about things unseen. John Owen's right. You can build a whole life on things unseen. If you're a believer, that's what you that's what you build your life on. Those things that are unseen have been brought by the Holy Spirit, as it were, before your mind and your imagination, and they have become real to you. You have become persuaded of them. That's the work of God. The very fact that you believe is, is a miracle. It's an evidence of God at work in the world. People around you don't have this. It's the nature of faith that it makes a life on things unseen. Now you think of it. We have eternal life now. But unless Jesus comes, you're going to die we have the promise of resurrection bodies. But unless Jesus comes, they're going to put our bodies into the dirt and they will go back to the dust from which they were made. We have blessedness promised to us. And yet all of us experience temptations and trials and tests. There is plenty, fullness, promised to us. But first, some of us have to look, deal with doing without, straightened circumstances. 
There is glory promised to us. But right now we have to suffer on this side of the sun. There's a day coming promised to us when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But today, we have to make our way through this trail of tears. The carrying on of God's work in us is invisible. There's nothing we can look at, yet we know that God is at work inside of us, in our character, in our lives, in our minds. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesians that the eyes of their understanding might be opened, that they might know the hope of their calling and the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. Because we can't see it. So he prays that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to grasp it and to hold it. This is something we're talking about today that the person who isn't a Christian has absolutely no idea what we're talking about. Because the natural person, that is the person without the Holy Spirit, does not receive the things of the Spirit and their foolishness to them. And neither can they know them, the Bible says. But you know them. You know them. Because God has given to you the gift of faith. And these things should have an impact on the way we live our lives now. I'll just select one area. There is a lot of unnecessary, unwarranted, and I would say ungodly panic among Christian people who are obsessed with the horror stories they read on social media. We allow ourselves to be worked up, stirred up into a panic. The world is coming to an end. The devil is going to have the last word. Everything is bad. Everything is gloomy. Everything is the pits of the world. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? If you don't, it's because you don't have social media. which means you've got your head in the sand or something. You're probably a happier person. But you read some of this stuff and you would think, Satan is going to win. Well, brothers and sisters, that's nonsense. We know the end of the story. And the end of the story has already been written. Every bit as much as God had already had it in writing that Jesus would be crucified, Psalm 22, that Jesus would be despised and rejected by his people, Isaiah 53. And those words came true. So we have it in writing. Satan and all his works will be thrown into the lake of fire. The Lamb will win. So that, there's our hope, okay? Faith in that hope should change the spirit that we have so that we don't panic. We don't panic. 
We rise above all the frustrations and the worries, and we console ourselves with the realities, the realities of what God has done for us in Christ. St. Augustine used to say, well, he said in a prayer in which he was praying, he, he, he mentions his mother in this prayer. And he says to God, his mother used to often throw God's words back in his face. And that's what we should do. You take the promises of God and you throw back at him everything he's had written, everything he's said. You throw it back to him and you say, but Lord, you said, but Lord, this is your word. I know you're going to keep your word. You pray that back to God and the Holy Spirit will use that to give you perspective in the present. Brothers and sisters, we are given the great gift of faith. This is how we're to live. This is what Christian living is about, as we're going to see. It's living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, we pray that you would please write your word in our hearts and give us, we pray, to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching, to encourage one another in our faith. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.